you got to help me out. Okay, so tonight I want to talk to you, um, sort of picking up where we left off last time. How many of you were here last time? Okay, so you all took the personality quiz pretty much. <laughs> Liz Bentley, she looks guilty back there. So last meeting we talked about our personality traits and our love languages and how we relate each other, uh, to each other and to our friends and family. Did any of you go home and, like, sort of uh, give the quiz to your spouse? Yeah, did you, okay, how about this? Did you, mine, mine behaves much better. So, no, so, did you assess your husbands? Did you maybe say, hey, yeah, we know, we know what Tom is. We know what Nate is. That's, that's not hard. Um, and uh, <laughs> I know. So, do tell, right? So, we took a quiz to see if we were sanguine. Who remembers what the sanguine personality was? Cheerful, yeah, like the life of the party, the party person. Somebody who is purely sanguine is super fun to be around but super hard to depend on. Um, now, how about the next one, the choleric personality? What would you say? Who said that? It's Liz Bentley, in case you want to know. She's the poster China. Now, the choleric personalities are that type A personality, that natural-born leader. Those are their strengths, and then sometimes their weaknesses are their – they can be excessively bossy. She's 18. <laughs> I can't ground her anymore. Okay, so we got melancholy. What, and what's the melancholy, Eliza? <laughs> Emotional. And then also they have like that tendency towards being a list maker, a over planner. They over plan everything. And then the phlegmatic. Remember that? That peaceful personality. Cheryl. <laughs> you got to get those words. We have a lot of phlegmatics in this church. And this, this choleric sanguine is like, come on. Give me something. So so when we're looking at people, I think it sometimes helps us to understand sort of obviously no one falls into a, a complete column, but sort of how they tick, how, how you can react to them, knowing that I'm a choleric, knowing how I can be perceived by a phlegmatic causes me to temper myself down a little bit. A sanguine who, you know, might, you know, not respond to um, – you know, the first or the second time that you say something because they're like, just having fun, you know. So the sanguines need to remember to focus more. The cholerics need to remember to delegate more and share the load. The melancholies need to remember that not everything can be perfect all the time and to find the joy in life. And the phlegmatics need to remember to step outside their four walls and make an effort to build relationships, even when that doesn't seem comfortable. Does that sort of resonate with you wherever you sort of fall in those, those four personalities? If any of you wants to take those, I have more of those quizzes I can give you, and it's super fun. And it is super fun to do with your spouses. It was meant to be interactive. All right. So remember that each trait has both strengths and weaknesses. But without a dispersal, because sometimes it's like, oh, I wish I were more sanguine, or I wish I was more of a choleric, or I wish I was more peaceful, but without an, a dispersal of all of us in this world, it would be very imbalanced. If everybody was like me, it would be an intense place, you know? You know what I'm saying? 
know what I'm saying? I mean, you know what I'm saying, Austin? Okay. So, now that being said, our personality traits can be affected by the Holy Spirit, and even if a choleric person has a propensity to be bossy, and if a melancholy has a tendency towards overplanning, we must learn to surrender those weak areas to God. In other words, and I hope this works tonight, yes, our personality traits are not a life sentence. They can be retrained. And I found this as I've gotten older. When I was young, I was sanguine all the way, and, you know, and I, church responsibility, and, you know, I was always the one looking to have the fun and the laugh. Now, there's still very much that part in me now, but now, I, you know, with, with a little bit of age, I've learned how to lead. I've learned how to be responsible. I've learned how to be dependable, and, and that all falls in that choleric. I've always been a little bossy, but... It's funny because you think I'm a firstborn, but I'm the last of seven. I've got more firstborn qualities than anybody in my family. So anything can be retrained. So even though we have the positives of our personality traits and the negatives, we don't need to say, okay, well, that's just who I am. Deal. We want to grow and develop and become more and more like Jesus and sort of take those traits that he called us to have and let those negative traits from any of the four personalities just sort of fall by the wayside. But there is one nasty little character trait that transcends all four personality traits. It transcends gender and age and where you are in life and your upbringing. It affects us all at some point. It is a giant thief in our lives, and we would all be wise to listen very carefully as to learn how to banish this destroyer from our homes and our thoughts, especially our thoughts, and our lives. And that thief is? Worry, 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 worry. In our society, we call it everything from anxiety, panic attacks, stress, to paranoia. There's like a new name for it every week, it seems. There's like this new thing. It's a new disorder. But really, it's always based in the fear. Okay, first of all, all worry is based in fear. Lord, this sermon is so for me. So funny as I was writing and I was like, thank you, God. I probably should be the first in line for this. It's always based in the fear that God or some other source is going to let us down. It's always based in fear that someone, something or God is going to let us down. Now, I looked up the definition of the word worry. And to be worried or to be worrying I thought it was a really interesting take on it. It says, to torment oneself with or suffer from disturbing thoughts, to fret. In other words, worrying is something that we literally impose on ourselves. It is a choice. Worrying is a choice just like not worrying is a choice. It is the thief of all of our lives at some time or another. It steals our sleep, our peace our ability to function enjoy, and enjoy life, to be happy in our relationships, to focus in prayer, to worship. But most important of all, worry is a major red flag that we are simply relying on our own strength to get things done and not on God. This is so hard because raise your hand if you haven't worried. Exactly. So at some point or the other, we have all miss the mark in this and it's so easy just to always think of the unknown and what could go wrong sometimes we invent things 
well, what if this happens? Nothing's happened, but what if it did? You know, there's just that sort of Woody Allen, you know, quality in our thinking to where we, we tend to, you know, want to obsess and be anxious about things. Um, in my own life, I really battle against worry. That's, that's one of the things I really do. I'll find myself awake at night thinking of all the worst possible outcomes for different situations, how this or that pain isn't going away, how difficult situations can be. And I'll find myself, I don't know about you, having lost like two hours of sleep over it. And then in the morning, I, I lost this necessary sleep, and now I'm battling grouchiness all day. So definitely, does that sound like God? No. No, no, no. Worry is, is not from God. So we have to identify first, and Amber says it all the time, that worry is indeed a... Yes. <laughs> it's one word. You said it the other day. Sin. It is a sin. Worry is a sin. People are like, what? What is worry a sin? Let's look. Philippians 4, 6, if you guys want to open up. This is one you probably want to underline in your Bible. This teaching is called, Don't You Worry About a Thing. T-H-A-N-G. Thang. (coughs) Philippians 4. Verse 6, don't worry about anything. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. So there's some pretty important um, components to this verse. First of all, it starts with a command. Don't worry about anything. And then he gives you what to do instead. He even gives you like the cliff notes here. Instead, pray about everything. And he's like, you can still tell God what you need. Tell God what you need. And then the most important thing, and thank him for what all he has done. So we're thanking him in advance for the things that he's doing. That is the way we prevent ourselves from worrying. I think that sometimes we think of the New Testament as sort of like the lighter part of the Bible. We think of the Old Testament as like the, you know, God was angry and we got the Ten Commandments, you know, we got the, the tablets of stone. And we think of the Old Testament as the thou shalt nots. And we're careful to take those seriously. But when we read a, a verse like Philippians 4, 6, we're like, that's cute. I'll do my best. Thank you, Paul, for those words of encouragement. But the word don't is the same as thou shalt not, right? Don't and thou shalt not is pretty much the same. And it's the same author speaking here, God, to us through what, I mean, he wrote the Ten Commandments through Moses. He wrote Philippians through Paul. Same, same guy saying the same thing. This verse is just as much a command as it is the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. And when we don't obey this part of the word, it's just as wrong as when we disregard any part of the word. I think we tend to make excuses for worry because it's like our little pet. You know, worry makes me feel better because it helps me just to process everything that's going on. Am I right, Chris? Amen. That's a hard thing. Worry is so integrated into the fabric of our society that there are medications for it counseling for it and many many excuses as to why we tolerate it in our lives anxiety is like a whole industry now it's a whole industry and kids do you remember i don't know when your kids were little and the first time that your kids 
said to you, I'm afraid that there's a monster in my closet? Who told them that there was a monster in the closet? Nine times out of ten, it's some kid show. I remember when um, Lacey was little, she was like, Mom, there's something under my bed. It was just like a toddler bed, so it was really close to the floor. (laughs) And I'm like, Lacey, we don't believe in that. There's nothing under your bed. In the name of Jesus, there's nothing under your bed. She's like, Mom, there's something under my bed. And I'm like, no, honey. In the name of Jesus, we don't believe. We banish that thought. And then I look underneath the bed, and Jazzy, our dog, was underneath there. <laughs> I'm like, oh, honey, Mama was wrong. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so sorry. I know she's never trusted me since. But... But I used to find that, like, the, the shows that were trying to help the kids not be afraid of the, the things that go bump in the night, those were the ones who were suggesting to my kids that there were things that go bump in the night. I'm like, stop telling them that. They never even think about it themselves. So anyway, the whole anxiety thing has become an industry, and kids are being told at a young age, you know, oh, well, you know, they just have anxiety disorder. No, they're worried. Why are they worried? If I think if we would get to the, the heart of why people are worried so much, we wouldn't have to medicate so many people all the time to where they're totally bleary-eyed, especially our teenagers who are right in their formative years. So all of it is rooted in worry and in fear. Jesus spent a lot of time telling his followers and his 12 disciples not to worry. And I was going to give you all the verses, but I'm just going to sort of synopsize it. He told them not to worry about food and clothes. He told them not to worry about what to say if they were arrested for preaching the gospel. He told all of us not to worry about tomorrow because we had all the grace that we need for today. And tomorrow's grace doesn't get there until tomorrow. Remember when he was feeding them the manna and the quail in the desert? And he said, pick up everything that you have for today, but don't take for tomorrow. Don't. Why? He was illustrating to us a point. Today, we are given grace for today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow, you'll be given a whole new bin of grace and a whole new, uh, uh, new slate every day. The Bible says his mercies are new every morning. So we know that tomorrow will take care of itself. As a matter of fact, Jesus said that. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Worry about today if you're, well, not worry, but think about today. If you're going to think about anything, concentrate on now. This is be fully present in where you are, in other words. When we were younger, we really struggled with discontentment. And we were always like, if we had this, we'd be happy. If we had that, we'd be happy. When this happens, then we'll be all together. You know, when we have this much money, we're going to tithe. When we have, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. And what happened is we were just never happy in where we were today. And we got to the point where we're like, you know what? We're not getting any younger. It's time to be content and happy and full of gratitude and thankfulness in our heart for what we have today. And then when that happens, then God sees that we're faithful with that. And the Bible says, he who's faithful with with little will also be faithful with much. And before you know it, you have more. Ah, important. Worry will rob that from you. It'll steal. Everything will be like a sieve. You know, it's like pouring sand into like one of those beach pails with a little grate on the bottom. Everything goes straight through. All that's left is like the rocks and the pebbles. Who wants that? All right. He also said that if we would seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, that we would have nothing to worry about at all. How about that? Matthew 6, 33, right? We all know the verse. It's even a song. It's a bumper sticker. 
It's one of those cool wall decal quotes that I put all over the church. You can buy those. They're ready-made. You don't even have to, like, personalize them. Those are, that's just one of the big ones. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Hallelujah, hallelujah. But when worry is present, that is a dead giveaway that we are not seeking him like we should, and that something else has jostled its way in between us and him. When we went to the Brownsville Revival in 1997, it was like a major, major like world event. Thousands of people were coming to this church in Pensacola, Florida every night. For five years, the first five years was just a steady seven-night-a-week flow. The power of God was so powerful in this place. People were coming from New Zealand and Japan and Australia and Canada and all over the world. And what would happen is the service would start at 7 o'clock at night, but people would start lining up for this service at 5 o'clock in the morning. So we drove down from Pennsylvania. We had our 50 youth. We were youth pastors back then. And we would have a few people be our, you know, go hold the line for the rest of us kind of people. And we would get into line, and we would stay there all day, and we would just sing worship songs, and we, somebody would go get subs, somebody would go get fried chicken, and we'd all just come back, and we'd just stay in this line in the Florida heat all day waiting to get in these church services because they were so anointed and so powerful. Well, right around 6.30, 6.45, people started wanting to jump in line, and they started like what we call smooshing up against us. Well, we had some major, like Nate-sized guys on, on our team. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. And they would stand up, and they would make a literal wall, like 10 people wide, so that people couldn't take our spot and steal our spot. Because the minute that they would, they would uh, you know, say it's time to go, people would rush like it's you know, Christmas Eve at the Walmart in uh, Brooklyn or something, you know? Scary, scary, scary. So... In the same way, we need to put up a wall like that around our place with God where no doubt, no anxiety, no fear, and no worry can separate us from the blessing that God has promised us. That's how purposeful we have to be about it. We have to be watchmen on our own walls. When worry and doubt and other enemies to our kingdom start trying to come in, we need to say, no, worry is not allowed in my house. Because why? Because it's a sin, A. B, it's showing that I'm thinking that I can do this in my own strength. And it will steal everything you've got, every bit of happiness. So as I was thinking about this, I was reminded about a really cool guy in the Bible. (coughs) Sorry, I got a little allergy going here. Named Obed-Edom. How many, raise your hand if you know who Obed-Edom is. Okay, that's good. This was always my two children raised their hand. I can go to bed tonight with no worries. Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom. As a matter of fact, every day, one of my daily declarations that I've written down is the blessing that Obed-Edom had is mine. And here's why. So open up your Bibles. We're not going to read all of this. I'm going to sort of give you a little synopsis of it. To First Chronicles chapter 13. We're going to Old Testament tonight. Huh? Did I mean to do that? Probably not. Oh, no. We'll go back one. There we go. You're fired. 
cute. Okay, so First Chronicles 13, here's what's happening. Okay, now when I'm talking about the ark, I'm not talking to you tonight about Noah's ark. It is not a boat. I'm talking to you about a chest of sorts that was um, commissioned by God to be made to hold the Ten Commandments and the staff that Aaron had that turned into a snake and other cool God-type stuff. That nobody, no human hand was supposed to touch. No human hand was ever supposed to touch the ark or any of its contents. Big, big proviso there. Okay. So during the reign of King Saul, he was the first king of Israel, (laughs) the Bible says that Saul did not go to the ark and consult the presence of the Lord there for anything. When to go to battle, what to do in this problem, that problem, the other problem. It says, um, David said that during the reign of Saul, the ark was neglected. Because before that, anytime they, and I think I've shared this before, anytime they went out to battle, they'd bring the ark out with them, not as a good luck charm, but because of the presence of the Lord was on that ark. And whenever they were in obedience and they had that ark with them, they did it. They kicked butt. So this ark has remained neglected all of this time. And David decides, we're going to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. Woohoo! Everybody's excited. Party. We're going to have the ark. We're going to have the presence of the Lord back in our lives. It's going to be awesome. So they take the ark. They put it on a new cart. And they start moving it with oxen. This sounds like a smart idea. And they hit this little bump. The ark starts to fall. And this really, really good guy, well-meaning guy named Uzzah, reaches out and he touches the ark to try to steady it. Boom, dies. Dead. Gone. And David is mad. And we can see this in verse, thank you, and 11, yes. <coughs> right, the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah. He struck him dead because he had laid his hand on the ark. So Uzzah died there in the presence of God. David was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah. And he named the place Perez Uzzah, which means to burst out against Uzzah, as it is called today. So David is now freaked out. He's like, I'm not bringing this thing. I just killed a good man back to Jerusalem. We're going to stop the journey here. And who's close to us? Obed-Edom's house is close. And we're going to take the ark there. And that's where the ark is going to stay. So in verse... 14, the Bible says that the ark of God remained there in Obed-Edom's house for three months, and the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he owned. Okay. This guy just touches the ark and he dies, and now the ark is in somebody else's home, and all of a sudden, the same thing that brought death brings complete blessing. Riddle me that. So, no one ever thinks about Obed-Edom's reaction to having the ark in his house. Just recently got a good man killed, and now it's being brought to his house. If, if that had happened, you know, it would kind of be like, you know, sort of like a, a, a pressure cooker. You weren't sure whether it was a bomb or whether you could cook your pot roast in it. You know? What, what, is, what is this going to bring my house if I let this thing in my house? No one ever really thinks of Obed-Edom except for me. I think about weird things. 
um, I might have been a little hesitant to accept it into my home. Why did they even choose him in the first place? Why Obedi? Was it just because his house was on the trail, or, or was it because maybe they knew something about Obed-Edom? And I, I really feel like the Lord, because we see later some really cool things about Obed-Edom, um, I think the Lord chose this house for a reason. Because le- clearly, Obed-Edom was a pretty chill, worry-free kind of guy. Because not only did he take it in, but he clearly knew how to deal with it. You see, if you look back into the uh, former uh, chapters in the Bible, there was a specific way that God had told Israel to touch that ark. It was supposed to go on poles through rings and be carried on four men's shoulders. Nobody was ever, ever, ever supposed to touch that. And had they been acquainted like I preached on Sunday, with the word of God, they would have known that. And Uzzah would not have died that day because he would have known better than to go out and let human flesh touch that which was sacred. This was before Jesus. So the the rules were a little bit different than they are now. Now Jesus tore down the veil and said, come on into the holies of holies, and now Jesus is in us. Back then it was not so. But the disobedience is the same. So... They'd broken the rules. They should have known not to use some new cart and definitely not to touch it. So Obed-Edom seemed to know better because when the ark was at his house, it was party time. Everything in his whole household became blessed. And I just want to do a little sidebar with you here. (laughs) Here we see the character of God on display. When we are walking in right relationship with God and we do things according to how he has prescribed them to be done, then the blessing is always there. You can see it time and time again. My husband and I were just talking about this today. He's like, isn't it weird how like this repetitive sin cycle went through the entire history of the Old Testament where God would bless Israel and then they would disobey him and then they would be put into captivity and then they would repent and then he would bless them and disobedience and idols and blah, 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 blah. And around and around in circles they would go Instead of just making a definitive decision that as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord no matter what happens outside, we're going to do this on the inside of my house. But again and again, they refuse to do it. And again and again, so do we. Guilty. As charged. It's me. Now, back to worry. Remember, worry is something we do to ourselves. Remember that definition? I love that definition. What was that? To torment oneself with or suffer from disturbing thoughts. To fret. To fret is an action verb. And when we say that we're fretting or we're worrying, that's something that's a self-inflicted wound. We're doing it to ourselves. The blessing on Obed-Edom's home is so evident that it emboldens King David to try again to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. Let's uh, look at 2 Samuel 6.12. 2 Samuel 6.12. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation tonight. It's really good. Okay. So... Samuel and Chronicles are sort of parallel. They're telling the same story just in different times in the Bible. So 
King David was told the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's household and everything he has because of the ark of God. How did they know that? How did, how did anybody get wind of that? When something's going really, really good in your house, how does somebody else find out about that? Facebook? The FB, you tell them? Or people just start noticing, hey, Amber's driving a new car. Hey, Julie just got a promotion on her job. Hey, Miss Linda bought Amy a gift. What? (laughs) I try to solicit gifts. It's wrong, but I do it. Somebody found out about the blessing on Obed-Edom's house because it was so apparent to everybody. The blessing of God is always apparent in our lives. So David went there and God bless you. David went there and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with great celebration. And if you go on to read in 1 Chronicles, I believe it's 13 and 14, it says, "Then David realized that they had done it the wrong way and he said, "Go get the Levites. Put it on poles." Carry it the way it was prescribed to. That's why what happened to Uzzah happened to Uzzah. And then David felt a little like, hee-haw, you know, I was wrong for getting mad at God for something we clearly had done wrong. So it's like, sorry, God. God was like, that's all. Now, so he acknowledges that. Now, when we are walking in God's will, our blessings will become contagious too. It would have been very easy for Obed-Edom to worry about having the ark in his house. It would have been easy for him to handle it improperly and and carelessly and to have that same calamity overtake his house that overtook Uzzah's family that day. But we see from Scripture that Obed-Edom was probably a seasoned guy. They probably knew when they were leaving the ark with him that they were leaving the ark with with a good guy. Now, he was just a normal, everyday Joe. He was not like the high priest or like the governor or anything, you know, great titles. We're going to see, because I just wanted to follow him throughout Scripture and see what else happened to him. And we're going to see here. Um, We see in other chapters that he went on to be the gatekeeper for the ark, a harp player and a worship leader, a minister, a trusted caretaker of the gold and silver in the temple, but pretty much blue-collar jobs. You know, he wasn't the main guy. But the best epitaph I think that any of us can have is this. Let's look in First Chronicles 26, uh, 4 through 8, and you'll see my amazing Bible reading skills here. All right, First, uh, First Chronicles, sorry, 26, 4 through 8. The sons of Obed-Edom, also gatekeepers, were Shemaiah the oldest, Jehazabad the second, Joah the third, Sakar the fourth, Nethanol the fifth, Amiel the sixth, Issachar the seventh, and Paluathai the eighth. God had richly blessed Obed-Edom. See, his blessing did not end when the ark left his house. Oh, no, it did not. The ark's blessing remained on Obed-Edom because Obed-Edom was not putting his hope in the ark, but in the maker of the ark. And he had dealt correctly and obediently with what God had given him to have uh, stewardship over. And because of that, it, it goes right here to, to the second generation. Now let's keep reading. 
Verse 6, Obed-Edom's son Shemaiah had sons. Now we're on the third generation. With great ability who earned positions of great authority in the clan. Their names were Othni, Rephael, Obed, and Elzabad. Their relatives, Elihu and Semachiah, were also very capable men. And now we go on to the generations going on beyond that. Verse 8, all of these descendants, I'm sorry, guys, I'm not helping you at all, am I? All of these descendants of Obed-Edom, including their sons and grandsons, 62 of them in all, were very capable men, well qualified for their work. See, the Bible says that an inheritance is not just for us, but for our children's children. A righteous man stores up an inheritance for his children's children. The decisions that you're making today will affect your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and so on and so forth to the multiple generations as far out as they can go. So the decisions that we make, whether we're going to worry or whether we're going to be people of faith, will not just affect us. I think that's something that we forget because we tend to be in a very self-centered um, time where everything's about Facebook and Instagram and look at me and how many I my self-worth is determined by how many likes I get or how many you know thumbs up whatever they are retweets I'm getting old already but God would say that the decisions that we're making now are not just for us therefore the whole world around us right now and for our generation for our children's children so I want to be a person who is not a person of worry. I want to be a person of faith. I want to personally, Amy Wilson, I want to learn how to not worry about everything that the enemy throws my way to worry about. And he's a fast pitch. You know, there's always something coming your way where he's like, oh, you better worry about that, girl. You got to worry about that. You got this, this, and this to do. Think about Friday. Oh, my goodness. Look at your schedule on Friday. I'm like, it's Tuesday. I've got grace for Tuesday. So I'm going to think about Tuesday. And then each single day, I'm going to have grace for the next thing. Proverbs 12.25 puts it this way. Worry weighs a person down. An encouraging word cheers a person up. Don't worry. Don't worry. Why let life be so heavy as to weigh ourselves down? So I began with this verse. I'm also going to end with it. It's Philippians 4.6. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. In him, it's really just that simple. We love to overcomplicate it, but Jesus said that our worry doesn't change one hair on our head. That's a quote. He says it's not going to change it. Might fall out a little, might get gray, but then I go visit Amber, and then it's all better. Trust God, and as he has always throughout all of Scripture, he will bless your lives and your children's lives as well, because it is simply his nature. God is trustworthy. He is trustworthy. There are so many verses I've seen. I've I've been young, and now I'm old. I've never seen a Seeds begging bread. Thank you, Miss Cheryl. Or seeds begging for bread. You don't have to worry about your food on your table, what clothes you're going to wear. Don't worry. He's going to take care of that. Now, let's stand. We're going to pray. I want you guys to have an opportunity to pray tonight. And I'm going to ask the elders' wives to come up here if you would do that for me.
um, and to pray with folks. If you're suffering under worry, doubt, fear, anxiety, any of that stuff, these ladies are going to pray with you. And I just have one more prophetic word from the one and only Stevie Wonder. Don't you worry about a thing.